Welcome to At The Organ. Hello, I'm Brent Johnson, and welcome to a new episode of At The Organ. This past month, we celebrated 100 years since the birth of Anton Heiler. Here in St. Louis, Missouri, we recognized Heiler with four special segments on our local organ music radio show, The King of Instruments. Well, today I've put them all together for you in one episode. Let's remember Anton Heiler. Born in Vienna, Austria in 1923, Anton Heiler quickly established himself in the musical scene in that town. Not only trained as an organist, he was also a gifted singer and conductor. As a young man, he studied organ at St. Stephen's Cathedral, and then later at the Vienna Academy of Music, where he also studied composition. After graduating, he was appointed a teacher there, and later a professor. Heiler's influence today is still felt in the performances of his students and their students following them. In contrast to a German style of playing the old masters, Heiler developed his own Austrian style that enthralled many students from around the world and enlivened their playing. Thomas Freilich is an organist who studied with Miriam Clapp Duncan at Lawrence University. Duncan had gone to Vienna and met Anton Heiler and knew him. He tells us about Miriam's experiences. She studied with him in the mid-60s in Vienna. She had been a Leo Sowerby student, so, you know, she played kind of that way until she went to Heiler and it was like, oh my God, he opened her ears and she all of a sudden had this new sound in her ear, her new way of playing. I mean, it just completely changed her life. And she became just really a master teacher. So for my freshman year on, I studied with her, and we kind of played the Heiler way, you know. Anton Heiler liked to call his students kinder, his children, a very Austrian sentiment. As a student of a Heiler student, Thomas became Heiler's first Grosskinder. Back in, in those days... Everything was played either legato or staccato. The organ was played, notes kind of furred together, and and um, if something was articulated, it was detached, you know. So you either played just a real soupy sort of frock-style legato, or you played just grossly detached. And she learned, of course, that she had had no experience with track or organs until she went to study with him, and she learned... Um, with great finesse, you know, how you can how you can play these keyboards. Mm-hmm. 
Heiler was a great proponent of mechanical action or tracker action on organs, although his new ideas about playing both Baroque and Romantic music would translate onto any kind of instrument. Many young students found his new style inspiring and flocked to Austria to study with him, many taking advantage of the Fulbright program. He played Mozart, he played Haydn, but I mean, he was mostly, well, he was primarily known as a Bach player more than anything else. It was, it was just a new sound. It opened up everybody's ears. Heiler was often in ill health for many years, but his death in 1979 was unexpected, and it was possibly exacerbated by his often overwhelming workload. But it's very sad to me that people, people that are younger, like 20s, 30s, 40s, they don't know Heiler. I think that that was a, a real transitional period for the organ, it's pulling us out of the, the sort of squishy, romantic oozy area you know and into an area where we now have organs that play cleanly that are pleasant to listen to i, I think of all the early uh, tracker organs they just you know they were all chiffy and i just think that tyler and marie claire and they really changed the whole atmosphere of organ playing from then on i mean i think Every artistic medium, I think, has to have kind of a reckoning point where you can say, yes, this is where it stopped, and this is where something else started. And I think those were the years when it was really um, a remarkable thing, and I, I feel very grateful to have, have been a part of all of it.
From the Vienna Academy of Music, Heiler's influence as a teacher was felt around the world. He attracted students at first from just Europe, but then American students started to flock to study with him as well. However, in the summers, he would participate in the Harlem Organ Festival in the Netherlands. Heiler won the improvisation competition there in 1952, an event that catapulted him into international fame and started his concert touring career. At the Harlem festivals, Heiler was joined by Marie-Claire Alain from France and Luigi Tagliavini from Italy. Each summer, these three would present masterclasses in their particular areas of expertise, as well as teach some private lessons. Heiler's predilection for Dutch and later Danish pipe organs over German and Austrian instruments was one of the reasons he liked to head to the Netherlands every year. While on his concert tours around the world, he was often asked to present similar seminars and masterclasses. One of his recurring stops was right here in St. Louis at Washington University. In the 1960s, at the invitation of Howard Kelsey, Heiler would come to St. Louis every three years. Kathleen Baldwin was a student at Washington University then and attended some of these seminars. Kelsey, you know, always had his finger on everybody and everything. And Howard would routinely get top flight people to come over here during the summer and give master classes. He had Jillian Ware, he had Garrett Jones from England, and Anton Heiler. They were held in Graham Chapel and they turned the console around so that we could all see, you know, what he was doing. He gave a course on the entire uh, works of Bach and what he called the old masters. He played from miniature scores if he needed the score, you know, gave suggestions on uh, how to approach like the big preludes and the fugues, you know, pointed out rhythmic things that were not terribly obvious, but once he pointed them out, there they were. I mean, he knew that literature upside down, inside out, and backwards. And, you know, it was just terribly uh, beneficial and enlightening. The old masters uh, were composers from uh, German, French, uh, and, and Spanish, Spanish old masters. The classes were just absolutely wonderful. These seminars at Washington University were mostly in the form of master classes held in Graham Chapel with students gathered around the organ. However, sometimes his time here did allow for private lessons. Despite Heiler's preference to play and teach on mechanical action instruments, he was reported to have been quite fond of the electric action organ in Graham Chapel.
Thomas Freilich is an organist who knew Anton Heiler and first met him in Dallas, Texas at a similar event held at Southern Methodist University. All week long we had, you know, a, a class with Marie Claire, a class with Heiler, a class with Palavini every single day. So it was kind of intensive master classes, sort of like they had been doing at St. Bobble. I think we had uh, like a two or two and a half hour class in the morning and a two, two and a half hour class in the afternoon. We really got our money's worth. Each student had an opportunity to play for him in class and he would critique and you know, you can use, you can learn an awful lot by hearing somebody critique another student. Heiler's connections to St. Louis were very strong. In fact, the first American to travel to Austria to study with Heiler as a Fulbright scholar was St. Louis native Rudolf Kramer. Rudy had been a student at Washington University, and he started a flood of young organists headed to Austria to learn this new and exciting style of playing Baroque music. That included his younger sister, Marie. The two of them kept in touch with their teacher and often hosted him on his trips to St. Louis. Heiler's time here wasn't just limited to teaching, though. He also gave many recitals here as well. I've never, I had never heard anything like it before and never anything since. So I don't even remember who the composers were. I just remember I was terribly impressed. He played a recital on the Rudetsky organ out at the Priory. And of course, it was absolutely gorgeous. And he did an improvisation at the end. And the material that uh, was given to him to improvise on was a series of notes that John Perkins from Wash U gave him that, of course, were not a tune. They were just a series of notes. And Heiler improvised on that for, I, my recollection is, like a half an hour. <laughs> now, that might be an exaggeration, but it was a very extensive, long improvisation. And in my lifetime, I have had a few ex musical experiences where I felt that I was just being lifted up, you know, <laughs> above where I was sitting or whatever. And that was one of them. And my ear wasn't good enough to catch this. But afterwards, John Perkins was absolutely gobsmacked about what he heard. He said he heard Messian style in there. He heard this style and that style, but also in the course of the composition, Heiler took out the either, it was either five or seven pitches and used the opposite five or seven pitches. In other words, it was like a musical negative of the theme that he had been given. And John's ear was good enough to catch that. So, I mean, that was the kind of uh, mind that Heiler had.
Tyler influenced the way most of us think about early music, especially the music of J.S. Bach. He helped change the way organists approach this music. He did this not only with his innate musical talent, but he did something we usually consider standard today, but that was a new idea in the 20th century. He went back and analyzed original manuscripts. By going to the source material, he often discovered ideas about what the composers intended that others had missed. Things like groupings of notes or small performance notes that were either overlooked or changed in later editions led him to new ideas about playing this music. Of course, after the Second World War, this wasn't an easy task. Many of these sources were in libraries and collections held behind the Iron Curtain. Now, as a native of Austria, Heiler had an advantage over many of his colleagues. It was easier for him to get permission to visit, although it was still trying. Permission and access could be revoked at the whims of local officials. Heiler passed on his ideas to his students. This new, exciting way of playing Bach and other old masters drew students to him from around the world. But it wasn't just the live performances that got the attention of organists. Heiler was invited to record his playing as well. And as these recordings proliferated around the world, so did the Heiler method of playing Bach. In 1950, the Dutch company Philips set out to record the complete keyboard works of Bach and chose Anton Heiler to perform the organ works. Heiler was not a stranger to making records. He had already played and conducted on several albums, many with the Vienna Symphony Orchestra or the State Opera, and all recorded in Vienna. So sometime in 1953, when it came time to start thinking about recording organ works, Heiler was adamant that this would happen in Switzerland. He much preferred the organs of Switzerland, particularly the instruments built by Metzler and Kuhn, to the instruments being built in Austria at that time. Metzler had been on the forefront of the organ reform movement, and they were creating mechanical action organs that Heiler thought were best for the works of Bach. The first set of records for Philips were recorded on a Kuhn organ in Talville, Switzerland.
Heiler went on to record many more albums, all on organs built by Swiss organ builders or sometimes Danish. He felt these northern instruments possessed the right qualities throughout to bring this music to life. These neo-baroque sounds, now captured on vinyl and shipped around the world, helped establish Heiler as a preeminent organist. After all, this was 1954. Being published by a recording label was a big deal. It's not like today where most of us are carrying around fairly advanced recording equipment in our pockets, and publishing is as simple as uploading a file to the internet. Now, These mono recordings opened the ears of many organists all over the world. Heiler, though, was not entirely pleased with these first recordings. He found the sound quality lacking. As his contract with Philips expired in 1960, he set out to do this again with an Austrian company, Vanguard. Now, Vanguard was owned by an American company, and at the head of that was Seymour Solomon in New York. Solomon and his brother Maynard were responsible for many LPs of classical music and were behind the Musical Heritage Foundation, which produced dozens of generically labeled but thorough recordings of organ music. And Maynard Solomon is also a prolific writer about music. So Vanguard wanted to start over with the complete works of Bach, this time in a stereo format, and again on Dutch and even Danish organs, uh, this time built by the firm of Marcusen & Son. The first collection of organ works was recorded in the Church of St. Maria in Helsingborg in Sweden. The organ was built by Marcusen & Son in 1959.
Heiler recorded just about all of the Bach works, including complete sets of the Great 18 chorales and the Orgelbuchlein. As one listens to these recordings, it's interesting to see Heiler's taste for brighter instruments and more neo-baroque sounds. Of course, Heiler didn't just record Bach. He also made some very memorable recordings of Rager, and these were some of the last recordings he made. And that's what we're hearing now. Overall, these recordings were well-received. Even after his death, LPs were re-released and then reissued into newer formats, like cassette tapes and CDs. as multi-talented as Heiler was, composing was just one of the many musical activities he took part in. He first became known as a composer in 1945, just as Europe was starting to open back up again. It was a piano toccata for four hands that first gained him the attention of other musicians in other countries. Of course, Heiler composed for different instruments throughout his life, and especially for choral forces. Uh, but today, I'm just talking about his organ music. It's hard to define specific periods of any composer's output, but for the sake of our short exploration today, we're going to start with the first 11 years and consider them an early period of his composition. 
During then, he turned to Johann Sebastian Bach and the Austrian composer Franz Schmidt for much of his inspiration. He wrote a number of chorale settings, much like J.S. Bach's Orgelbuchlein chorales, but it was his first setting of Est Isandros, a partita on low how a rose air blooming, that he composed for his wife for Christmas of 1944 that marked the start of Heiler's truly independent thoughts in music. That work is what we're hearing right now. Another distinctive work from this period is his prelude and fugue in A major. Here we see a foot in the old and a foot in the new. We have a very classical form, well used by Johann Sebastian Bach and other early musicians, but the music is angular and chromatic and definitely of the 20th century. However, Heiler never really strays very far from the tonic key of A major, something he would explore more in his later compositions. And the fugue theme is a singable melody. It holds much in common with the lyrical style of his vocal music. Other works from this early period in Heiler's life are his first sonata for organ and several other chorale-based works. Next, we look at more of a middle period in Heiler's compositional output. Now it's very arbitrary, but starting in 1956, we see the creation of several of his best-known works. Originally commissioned by a German publisher for a large anthology of church music, his work Infesto Corpus Christi is a four-movement work designed to give Catholic church organists music to use in masses, specifically the Feast of Corpus Christi. As such, all the melodies are based on chants for that day. After the texts of the Mass were chanted, there was often time to fill, such as after the offertory or after communion, and these works were designed to do that. 
Now this piece should have been a massive success because so many organists were in need of music for masses. However, the publisher found the work to be too technically challenging for their intended audience. And in a note from the chief editor that was accidentally returned to Heiler with the scores, it said, quote, pieces using such blues harmonies cannot be inflicted on German organists. Now, where exactly the editor found such harmonies is a little unclear. However, the work was later published by a Viennese publisher. It was a great success, and nobody knows what happened to all the other works that were supposed to be published in this great German collection. Interestingly enough, Heiler submitted his postlude on Ita Misa Est to that same German publisher in 1964. Despite being rather more difficult to play, it was accepted by the publisher, perhaps because Anton Heiler was becoming a big enough name that one wouldn't dare to turn him down twice. This piece is based on the final chant of the Mass, and although based on an eight-note melody, Heiler manages to develop it to make use of all twelve tones of the scale. Now, Heiler didn't use the 12-tone row as some early 20th century composers had, but he was aware of it and would often take his melodies through every note of the scale, if not necessarily with a specific structure. Another work from this period, based on Gregorian chant, is his Ecce Lignum Crucis, a piece for Good Friday. This work was written in 1965 for Oxford University Press. Heiler's understanding of chant was based on the solemn method of singing, where every square note gets the same value. It makes the chant rhythm a bit more regular than we might be used to today. Finally, we enter Heiler's later period of composition. This was marked by music that was a bit more harsh and dissonant, but also a small return to some chorale-based works, such as this setting of the chorale tune Aus Tiefer Not, Out of the Depths I Cry Today, commissioned in 1975. And one of Heiler's final works was yet another setting of Esses Rose, composed again for his wife, marking a lovely bookend to what was all too short of a career. Anton Heiler died in 1979 at the age of 55. He left behind a legacy of not just organ works, but many, many students who have carried on his teaching, his performances, and his love of all things musical. If you'd like to learn more about Anton Heiler, I recommend the English translation of Peter Planowski's book, Anton Heiler, Organist, Composer, Conductor. That book was indispensable during the creation of this series, so my thanks to Peter and to Krista Rumsey, who translated it. My thanks also to Thomas Freilich, Kathleen Baldwin, Krista Rakich, Stephen Roberts, and David Borgmeier at St. Louis University for their help. You can find complete information about all of the music you've heard in this episode by going to attheorgan.com and looking on the post for this show, episode 198. 
If you'd like to know more about the radio show that these segments were produced for, well, you can find a link to that there as well. It's kingofinstruments.show, also a production of the Organ Media Foundation. Remember, we are a listener-supported organization. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Organ Media Foundation, just go to organ.media and click on support. I'm Brent Johnson. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to At The Organ. We'd love to hear your comments about the show. Send your email to info at attheorgan.com or just go to our website where you can comment on the show. There you can also hear this show again or find back episodes. The address is attheorgan.com. At The Organ is a production of the Organ Media Foundation. For more information about supporting the foundation, go to organmedia.org. Thank you for listening.